Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is Wendy Thurm, Ms. Thurm, who's been writing for Fangraphs since the beginning of October, is different in some pretty noticeable ways from the other members of the Fangraphs stable of authors. Uh, for example, in terms of the amount of X chromosomes she possesses, also in the fact that she's over 19, which is not a quality that all of our writers possess, and also for the fact that she has had a rather successful career already as a San Francisco-based lawyer. She is not different, however, from the respect that she produces crack analysis for the electronic pages of Fangraphs, and uh, more generally that she has a deep and abiding love of the game of baseball. In what follows, we talk at some length about that love of baseball, what prompted Ms. Thurm to take a break from her successful career and pursue the slightly less lucrative one of writing about baseball for the Internet, how she became a dedicated San Francisco Giants fan after growing up a New York Mets fan. And on that same note, we explore some of Ms. Thurm's very strong, while simultaneously reasonable, opinions about some of the recent transactions performed by Giants GM Brian Sabian. All of that and so, so much more on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. I ask you, like, I pretend I know things about San Francisco. I like, what, what neighborhood do you live in? I live in the Inner Sunset neighborhood, which is just south of the main entrance to Golden Gate Park in the section of the park near the fairly newly uh, redesigned DeYoung Museum, which is one of our art museums, and the California Academy of Sciences, which is a planetarium, aquarium, rainforest, science uh, mecca. Fantastic. Wow. And you live close to that thing? I live four blocks walking distance. That sounds great. It's wonderful. Now, when we bought, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say when we bought the house, uh, within a year, the art museum closed and underwent construction, and several years later, the science academy closed and underwent construction. It was only in the last three years that they've both been open. So. We, you know, we kind of lived through all of that, and now we're reaping the rewards. It's great. Now, I mean, immediately, and, and to some degree, and, and I don't, uh, I think we'll probably call this uh, "Meet Wendy Therm. That'll be the uh, the title of this particular episode of the podcast. Uh, and actually, it's it's fun to do. Like, and, and I've, you know, I've done it with a number of other Fangraphs writers, um, especially when I joined and started the podcast, because you know. We hadn't met. I hadn't met any of them. I had met literally zero until we went on our inaugural uh, Arizona trip, and we we can maybe uh, make reference to that as we go along to the Arizona trip. Uh, the third annual one is coming up. I know. Yeah, and you're excited about it. But uh, but to some degree, this is going to have to be about how you are different, it, just in terms of like the bare facts of the sort of demographic to which you belong, than a lot of the people, a lot of the other. People who write for Fangraphs, for example, you are a homeowner, <laughs> which separates you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, because, you know, it's a site that, you know, if there's been any sort of note, and I, I, as a 32-year-old, I am like aged at some level for the site, because we've had people writing, you know, in high school, um, 
and concerned, you know, maybe in the other direction that they were too young. But so you, so your path, your path to Fangraphs has been uh, probably a different one than a lot of the other people uh, who've made their way to the site. I think that's fair to say. That's yes. fair to say. So, if, for example, you're a homeowner. You said we. Uh, is that uh, are you are you married to a? a I'm married. Yes. You're married yeah, to married. a to a human human person. Congratulations! Congratulations! I would characterize him mostly in that fashion. Yeah. Mostly, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I get that. That's. Uh, I think my wife would have a similar thought about me. Generally human, a more. I mean, a part animal. Uh, part of that. Now you and you're also the sort of person who I believe has had a career. Is that also? That's that's true. A whole. I mean, a whole life. A whole, um, a whole life. <laughs> a whole another. A whole another, particularly working life. So yeah. yes, I um, I spent about twenty five years in in law and politics uh, until basically about a year ago when I left my high powered, well compensated law partnership to to take a year off uh, essentially to kind of get to know my kids again and reacquaint myself with my wonderful home city and just to kind of take a breather. And after about a month of doing yoga every day and reading novels, and that was great, I was a little bored. So I started up the baseball blog, and now here I am writing for Fangraph. Now, was that – that's an interesting thing you mentioned there, this sort of idea. I, I assume that uh, sort of leading up to, to your sabbatical, as it were, uh, you had notions of, of what – Oh, if, if I had the time, this is this is what I would want to do. And it, it seems like you're suggesting yoga, reading books. I was curious as to what, what did you realize about having time that you didn't that you didn't uh, you didn't expect, you didn't anticipate. Right. I would say that I I didn't have a lot of notions. I mean, I was just I I, I came to the decision that what I was doing was not where I needed to be that I had had this fabulously successful, uh, great career, but I needed to be doing something else. And what that other thing was, I really wasn't sure. So I you know, essentially spent about six months kind of making that decision, tidying up kind of the family finances since I was the person supporting everybody and trying to figure out how we were going to make it work for me not to be doing anything for a while. And then I just stopped. And um, I let each day come to me. And I, you know, I started to do yoga because so I thought that seemed like a good idea, and I liked it, so I started to do more of it. And and then it was about four to six weeks into it, and I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to decide what I'm going to do vis-a-vis a career, but I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do to kind of keep my mind, you know, active and stimulated. And that's kind of how I got to writing about baseball. Right, and baseball is like a, a great. It because it, it has so much data and so it like it sort of like per, allows for sort of endless thought exercises I guess and so in that sense it seems like it could be pretty fulfilling as a way to occupy yourself um, when you're not uh, you know if if you're looking for something to sort of engage with um, and you're used to as you mentioned you know actually dealing like on a day to day basis with uh, quite a bit of problem solving anyway right and. I mean, I should say that I'm a, you know, from birth kind of passionate baseball fan. So even while I was having that um, successful, you know, professional career, I was, you know, obsessed with 
all things baseball. So watching as many games as I could, going to as many games as I could, reading as much as I could about the sport. So it wasn't like I just thought, hmm, baseball, that might be a good substitute for, you know, kind of legal thinking. Uh, it was something that, you know, it's just very much a part of me from probably the minute I was born. And um, it was, you know, time was turning towards spring training for the 2011 season. I always plan a trip to Arizona, always go see my beloved Giants and whoever else is, you know, playing around there the time I go. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to go. But maybe this time I'll go without my family. I'll just go and I'll take in a bunch of games and I'll take a lot of photographs and maybe this will be something I'll write about. So, I mean, it really it was kind of a just fairly organic process. It was kind of one of the first times in my life I didn't sit down and plan exactly, you know, what I was going to do and exactly what it was going to look like three months later. Um, and, it, and, and it turned out to be one of the best since I ever made. So that's a life lesson somewhere. Yeah, that, no, that does sound like a life lesson. Is that, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes when you pursue the exact thing you want, uh, it, it 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 turns out all right. <laughs> that's uh, that's not bad. Yeah, not bad. Um, and so, and is that now? Is that how uh, hanging sliders came around? That is so. That yes. Yeah, so my blog, um, which is unfortunately gathering a bit of dust right now, <clears throat> while I <clears throat> do work for Fangraphs and I also write. Baseball Nation, I think you know that. Um, so the blog is not quite sure what I'm going to do with it. But in any event, about, yeah, it's almost a year. Mid-February of last year, I started up a blog called Hanging Sliders and just started writing. You know, I went to spring training. I wrote a lot about spring training. I did a lot of kind of previewing and forecasting for the season uh, in, a, in, a, in a bit of a different way than, you know, a, a lot of the kind of mainstream writers did. I, I had kind of an approach early on to try and, you know, be, uh, to try to have a voice that was different from what was out there, whether that was in kind of the mainstream media or in, you know, blogs. And um, I bought about 15, you know, kind of seminal baseball books and kind of read them all <laughs> about a two-month period, uh, tried to educate myself as quickly as I could about sabermetrics and you know, educate myself more so that I could write about it. And, yeah, that's how Hanging Sliders was born. Now, I'm curious, how did your how did your family react to your, uh, to you sort of um, investing yourself in, in baseball to that degree? Um, and the, especially in particular the writing and analysis of, of, of the game. Right. Well, my immediate family, I mean, my, my kids were thrilled. Uh, especially my son. I have an 11-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter. Uh, my son is is a huge sports nut. So, I mean, we already have that connection in our relationship, but you know, he thought that was pretty darn cool. Um, my daughter was just happy because it meant I was going to be working out of the house and around a lot more. So I could have been, you know, doing anything. I could have been learning how to be a hairstylist as long as I was dropping off at school <laughs> and picking her up pretty much every day and just around in her life a lot more. She was very pleased about that. And, um, you know, I mean, I think my husband, I mean, I think, you know, there was growing pains because, as I said before, I mean, I'd been supporting everybody in the family for a very long time financially. My husband is all, is also an attorney, but he was running a nonprofit and essentially not getting paid for 10 or 15 years. So kind of making that switch of 
me having the job that's more about passion (laughs) and he having to kind of switch that you know that was that was a process it took a while to kind of play that out um beyond that you know my parents still have no idea what's going on um no i really think they, they kind of get it um and they're pleased that it's not me just sitting by myself writing just for my blog anymore that there's you know kind of a bigger audience um, and I have two older brothers who kind of taught me everything that I know and love about sports, and you know they think it's just really cool. So. Well, let, let, let's address that. I, I'm kind of I'm always interested in how people in, in this I guess the sort of uh, uh, biography of fandom for for everyone, right? Because um, obviously there are a lot of baseball fans. That's that's not uh, saying anything of great um, substance. However, the stories tend to be uh, pretty interesting when you get to them, and, and everyone has their sort of own way of getting to it. Uh, I believe, um, from a, the vast amount of research I did to prepare for this interview, uh, that you uh, you grew up somewhere in the in the New York area, uh, began a Mets fan, and then uh, largely owing to you know to the move that you made, uh, California words. Uh, became a Giants fan at that, but how was that? How was the sort of game introduced to you as a child? Um, so yes, I grew up on on Long Island, on the South Shore of Long Island. Um, and as I mentioned, I have two older brothers who are kind of substantially older than me, kind of five and seven years. So, um, but I was born into a baseball family. My maternal grandfather was a diehard uh, Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and. I mean, as my mother always said, I mean, every time I get up at a game and scream, the Dodgers suck, my grandfather rolls over in his grave. But that's kind of the way. That's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Grandpa. That's just um, that's, that's how it's thank going. Thank you for introducing me to baseball, but I've switched my allegiances now. So, um, yeah, I mean, those, so, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, the Mets were, you know, people... I mean, people tended, I don't know, people, but the folks that I knew, my family, aunts and uncles and cousins who were all diehard Dodgers fans, many of them became Mets fans when the franchise was born. Uh, and I was born not that long after the Mets, and, um, you know, they won the World Series in 1969, so, and then again in 73. So those were kind of formative years. They, I mean, they were in it in 73. And those were formative years of my childhood. So that was, I mean, you know, we were huge Mets fans, and, and they were Didn't winning. Get to a lot of game, huh? And they were winning. And they were winning, and the Yankees weren't great. My dad had grown up a Yankees fan, and that was apparently quite, quite an issue when my parents, when my mom brought my dad home to meet my grandfather. It was like, oh, right religion, good politics. The Yankee thing was kind of a big problem. <laughs> the relationship almost didn't get off the ground. But they worked that out, so... Um, yeah, the Yankees weren't, I mean, the early, in the late 60s and early 70s, not the heyday for the Yankees. They got good again, obviously, in the late 70s, um, with Billy Martin. But, so it was, it was always a part of my life. Uh, there were other sports that I also was very into at an early age. Um, we were big fans of the hockey New York Islanders, largely because they were the, I mean, they were the only team that had a facility on Long Island. They played at the Nassau Coliseum, which is five minutes from my house. And everybody I knew had season tickets to the Islanders because it was it was affordable and they were the only game in town. So I would say baseball and hockey were my two huge loves growing up. And hockey, I eventually kind of 
fell away from for you know a variety of reasons, but baseball always stayed with me. I went to school and graduate school in Boston, so I spent a lot of time in Fenway Park. That's that's a great way to keep your passion for baseball going. Um, so I mean, it's it's kind of always been there, and you know every you know every experience I've had with it has made it grow even more. Now, were you were you a was it a tomboy situation or or was it just because I know that. In some cases, that might be it, or was it a situation where it's just kind of the the fabric of the you know the town in which you live? It's like you're there, therefore you're a Mets fan. Um, I was a bit of a tomboy, although I played basketball, not baseball. Um, uh, when you meet me, you'll be surprised at that because I'm not particularly tall, but I was very tall as an 11 year old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I played basketball. I, I in fact integrated the 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 boys basketball there was a boys basketball league in my town and there was nothing for girls so shortly after title nine was passed and i showed up and said i want to play and they said you can and i said no i can and that was the end of that so i played a couple of years in the boys basketball league and then there were girls who played in little league a few but i never i wasn't particularly good at baseball playing it um but i mean new york is you know many communities are you know they're kind of crazy sports places. I mean, people kind of take their sports fandom incredibly serious, and, you know, it's part of the fabric, I think, of kind of New York culture, whatever your team is. Um, and so, you know, that was just a part of it. I grew up knowing, you know, I, you know, had lots and lots of, you know, fights in middle school and high school with Yankee fans or Ranger fans, which was the other hockey team in New York, still is. Um, just having sports be a part of your life is something that's, I think, pretty well ingrained in kind of a New York upbringing more so than than california for sure right yeah and and, and of course californians uh, and i think it has uh, if i may if i may uh, play the the role of armchair sociologist momentarily <laughs> but in but i know this especially you know being from um from the boston area is that like there's a lot of sort of i don't know if it's frustration or anxiety sort of built into the culture already and sports is like a is a great i don't know if it you know if it's sublimation or if it's you know the purest expression of that but it's it's not like and it, it, it's been hard explaining to people in other places you know like living in portland oregon which is not a sports town uh really except for you know except for the blazers and even then it's more uh it's a different relationship certainly but you know a sport can be such an uh, an excellent um, outlet for or expression of those sorts of uh, the, the feelings of frustration and struggle. Uh, I know that I certainly felt among the you know the greater population in in Boston, and uh, and so I guess that that sort of like lends itself to to fandom, you know, because you're like it's a it's it's uh, playing out on a in a sort of a ritual way, something that like the entire population is experiencing every day. Yeah. I mean, I I would be really I, I'm sure there have been <clears throat> sociology, anthropology works written on this. I think I think you've hit on a lot of it. I don't know whether it is a sublimation or an expression, but I also I mean I think there's I mean number one I you know I think kind of the geography and the weather um, I mean the geography of people kind of living close together, many more urban centers on the East Coast, um, kind of a a hist- I mean, kind of a history of, you know, growing up with it. So, right, so sports 
you know, I mean, Portland has, you know, a franchise they've got in basketball and they've got, you know, college athletics. But, you know, many of the New York franchises and the variety of sports go back, you know, to, to the, you know, 19th century. So, um, and, you know, and, and sports are, you know, a family thing. They're one of those things that people kind of hand down from one generation to the next. So I think, I think there is kind of part of that. Um, it's ingrained. I think, you know, sports, Less so now, but in the early years, it was very much an urban experience. Um, now it's more of a ex-urban experience, you know, with kind of new stadiums and where they're built, although with baseball, you know, people try and move back into the city, which I think is good. So, I mean, I just think it kind of lends itself to that. Um, it's also, I mean, a weather thing. You know, there's six months out of the year, give or take, between, you know, rain, snow, sleet, cold, whatever, uh, people would rather be inside their house watching TV or in the old days listening to it on the radio which isn't the case out here. I mean, we're in our, I mean, we are in our quote-unquote rainy season, but we haven't seen a drop of rain in well over a month here, which is not a good thing. I mean, we're, we're kind of approaching a drought situation. Uh, but, you know, you can be outside 365 days a year in Northern California. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Too. That's not, that's a, that's a bad, <laughs> stupid, stupid thing to talk about. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of diversions, and the geography is different. You know, it's just it's just a different um, right a different life. So you know, I think that's something to do with it. Listen. Uh, so how so how did you? I mean, obviously you moved to San Francisco, but you know, uh, just because you moved to a place that doesn't guarantee that you're going to adopt the sports teams, especially if you're already a Mets fan. So how did that happen? Um, you know, was there a, a period where you were kind of a fan of both? Was there a moment like a, you know, like a, I don't know, you know, a Will Clark uh, line drive or something that uh, convinced you to switch over to the Giants? How, how, how did that come about? Yeah, there, I mean, I think I think that I think there was, although it was in a losing effort. But um, so I moved out here in early in uh, late 1993. And was out here and actually moved back to the East Coast for a couple of years for a particular job and then came back um, in mid-1999. Um, and the new ballpark opened the next season. So what was then known as Pac-Bell Park, now known as AT&T Park, opened for the 2000 season. And as it happened, the Giants played the Mets in the division series that year. The Giants were the division winners and the Mets were the wild card. And... Um, there was the famous Game 2, 3-1 uh, home run by J.T. Snow that tied the game in the bottom of the ninth, Game 2. Uh, the Mets went on to win that game um, and win the series. Um, but that, I mean, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly how loud it was. I wasn't at the game, but I know where I was in the city, and it was like the whole city rocked. But you could, it was like an earthquake. You could feel have the emotion and the rhythm of the city when Snow hit that three-run home run to tie the game. And it was kind of that game, that series, where I kind of had to decide, you know, who I was going to root for. And it was kind of at that moment I said, hmm, I think I'm going to be a Giants fan. That's the it. next season, um, 2001, I gave birth to my first child, and it was my six-month maternity leave was pretty much exactly the six months of the baseball season. So smart. I was that was good. I know. Yeah, you planned it precisely. Yeah, I I, yeah. Oh my god. It, yeah. <laughs> See, I'm saying some things are good to plan out in advance. Some things, you know, maybe are yeah. better if you do them more organically. And so I was, you know, I was home a lot and housebound a lot with an infant, and I 
you know, I watched or listened to every minute of every Giants game because I could. I went to a lot of games, you know, took my infant, went to a lot of games uh, because I had free time. You know, read everything I could. I mean, it just, you know, it just gave me that time. And from there, you know, I was hooked. Um, and you could do that. Because this is something, because, you know, uh, my wife and I, we have no children. But, you know, it's a thing. We've been married a couple of years. It's a prospect. It's still possible to I could still enjoy baseball if I have a child. That's a fact. <laughs> I could still. I mean, even more, even more so. You think um, even more so? Because I, I literally, I do very little now, and it's nice. What do you mean? I mean during the day. During... Oh, you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, during the day. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, can you be a devout baseball fan with kids? You know, I mean, I think it kind of enhances the experience. Can you be a successful baseball writer? thinker, analyst with, with kids, um, you know, it's challenging, uh, but, you know, I think it's, I mean, I think it's lovely to see a game which has, you know, still to me has an innocence to it and a, you know, a simpleness to it and to see that and experience that again through a child's eyes, I think is really wonderful. And what, yeah, so, and that's, cur- I'm curious about what age do you think a, you have a say you have a son and a daughter, is that right? Yeah, so my son is eleven, my daughter's eight. Okay, so what age do you think um now even I, I mean, just to sit down and watch a three hour game, that could be challenging sometimes. You know, baseball does not always lend itself to watchability, especially if it's like a mid August game and your team is like ten games, fifteen games out. But at what point generally speaking do you feel like a kid starts to get the baseball? Well, I think it depends on it depends on a lot of kids. My my son, who's older, is kind of a math person, so I mean that's kind of his his greatest strength. So I mean it just I mean, it really lends itself to that, right? So you take him to a game, and he just looks at the scoreboard the whole time, right? And he's and he's trying to figure out, you know, he's kind of getting the balls and strike things. He's figuring out what all the numbers mean. Um, you know, he's asking you lots of questions which, you know, sometimes can be annoying and keep you from watching the game, but, you know, you can see that the wheels are turning and he's kind of figuring it out. Um, and, you know, my daughter, um, she loved the experience. So, I mean, she's, you know, into math too and she loves figuring out the numbers, but she came to it, you know, much more like she loves spending a day with mom and going down to the ballpark. And, you know, sometimes it's a little bit like, Okay, in the second inning we'll have this snack, and the fifth inning we'll have that oh, yeah, snack. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's also, I mean, I mean, I know it's, it's, you know, it's almost always, you know, pretty good weather here. And uh, sorry to have to repeat that, but yeah, you know, it's you. just it's a lovely day. We live one one block, two blocks from the streetcar that goes stops right in front of AT and T Park. So I mean, it's just the quintessential urban experience. I walk two blocks, I get my coffee, I get on the train, I. Ride for 40 minutes. I get off. I walk into the ballpark. I mean, could it be easier? And um, so, just that experience, just a really lovely parent-child experience, you know, to kind of have a five-six hour outing like that. Now, do you have there happens to be a ball game going on? So, do you have to give your son a talking to you sometimes? Uh, maybe he'll quote a player's batting average, and you have to kind of pshaw him and be like, a batting average? What is that? <laughs> and you correct him, and you know, you provide the woba of the player uh, at bat. You have to have some um, serious conversations. That's to, the talk. Yeah. That is the talk. You know, it's not birds and the yeah. bees. 
you sit down your son and say, listen, I'm a little bit concerned you've been using uh, batting average to evaluate player ability and it's uh you know you're besmirching the therm name maybe is that is that uh um there's nothing about sports history politics or life that my son and i don't kind of tussle over it's just that kind of relationship so if i say you know i really i think you ought to appreciate this player more because look how much he walks or you know, look at his on-base percentage or look how many stolen bases he has or, you know, look how it, you know, it's doubles, not singles. He will find a way to argue with me about it because that's just the nature of our relationship. Yeah. So, um, uh, so we tussle about all of that. I would say, um, I, I would say that, you know, I mean, I've been, you know, as I've taught them the game, I kind of taught them to try and look at it kind of in a more modern way so um and he you know he's got a ton of baseball cards but he's not the kind of he doesn't sit around kind of memorizing players batting averages and that kind of thing so i don't think he's particularly wedded to that um i think it's more well it'll be i think with him it's more like it might be with some uh reporters which is you know how does he look in the batter's box you know what what's your feel about him as a player? And I'll just say, well, your feel about him as a player doesn't really match up to the numbers. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah does, he, uh, does he use the phrase, the good face? Is that... Uh, the, what was that? The good face. A good face? Oh, yeah, this is a scouting yeah. term. Uh, and it's oh, sort I don't of, know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Yes. oh, he has a baseball face. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Baseball yeah. Body. yeah. Um, um, so, yeah. Now, what for you, what was the sort of you were a big baseball fan, but just uh, because people are very interested in the sport does not necessarily um, mean that they will become interested in the analytical aspect of it. I'm, I'm sort of curious what your path was to that. Um, I mean, it was, it was, well, I mean, the path kind of coming to it generally was just kind of reading along, uh, you know, as, as kind of, uh, you know, sabermetrics were developing. I was not, um, I did another podcast the other night with the Giants podcast, and I said, you know, I wasn't I wasn't one of those people that had Bill James abstracts, you know, kind of under my pillow at night. I definitely came to kind of the analytical analytical side a little bit, you know, more slowly. Um, I didn't become kind of a zealot about it or kind of delve into it in great detail until uh, you know the last couple of years. So. Um, why was I attracted to it? Because, I mean, I, I mean, that's just kind of, you know, st- strategic analytical thinking. It's just kind of everything I've done in my life. So, it, it's a natural fit. Um, you know, give me the facts and let me figure it out. It's kind of, you know, what I've always done. <laughs> yeah, right. But, but on the other hand, I mean, the other part of what I've always done is to be a storyteller. Um, I mean, that, that's essentially what lawyering is, and that's a lot of what politics is, right? So you have your basic set of facts, but then you have to figure out, you know, how are you going to tell a story to make those facts come alive for, you know, voters, for a judge, for a jury? Um, and so, and that, that was kind of my mantra when I started the blog, which is, I want to write about this stuff in a way that is, um, you know, number one, write about it in a way that's kind of welcoming to people who, Maybe don't have you know the background that I do. Who who you know I've heard about you know Wolba and FIP and war and all this other stuff, but they don't really understand what it means, and it's really intimidating. 
so you know my mantra was to write about it write about that stuff in a way that was um, welcoming to people but also to use that information to tell a story uh, because I mean that that's what I always did so break down complicated concepts and you know make an argument for something that was going to be good for my client or my candidate or whatever so um, you know it it really fit in nicely but to me I mean so for me I re- you know I like the crunching numbers I like thinking about it but it's the storytelling that is the best part of it for me that's why I keep doing it because um, they're not for me they're not just numbers they're not just a way to um, you know it's not just a bet that's not the end game for me the end game for me is to be able to understand and explain kind of the beauty of a particular player's game or you know why why a manager might have made a decision why that decision might have been wrong or you know tell a story um, and that you know that's why it's powerful for me so yeah that's, right that's and that's kind of the holy grail in our in our sort of business too, right? With with fan graphs is, I get the sense that there. Are, I guess it's it's the challenge of of finding uh, people, and, and certainly you know when we when we go through hiring, this is this is a decided this is decidedly an issue, is that there are people who have uh, the skill with the numbers, but there's also this question of of um, Making the numbers come alive in a in a narrative sense, right. like you're discussing, and and that's a challenge because I mean it's a challenge to have. Usually, if if you're the sort of person to have followed one path, you know, be it uh, maybe a more um, analytical f- uh, field, or or maybe a more sort of you know humanities related field. Um, it's it's rare, I guess, that you would ever necessarily you know find the find the need to cross over. Um, you know, because it, it it also there's you know questions of personal identity built into it. You say, oh, I'm this sort of person. You know, my 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 stepmother, for example, who's also from Long Island, she studied uh, computer science, and uh, you know she and I know that she's like, oh, I, I you know I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a you know I'm not an English person. And then uh, certainly you know throughout college, you know I studied Latin, and uh, I was not a math math person and I think it becomes a, a part of your identity so the challenge I guess isn't for people to, to cross over to have a reason to cross over right I mean I was um, I was definitely much I mean and this is true for kind of my brothers and I we were all much more kind of we were much stronger in math than uh, you know kind of English you know, kind of growing up which you know was kind of fine for my brothers I, that was a little bit frowned on for me of course you know I grew up in the 70s so I mean it was was not recommended that as a young girl at that time that I'd be stronger in math and science than in English. That was somehow going to ruin my life. Mm. Um, but uh, and as it turns out, two of us, my, my oldest brother is a reporter and editor, and I mean he's kind of a math savant. So I mean he's gone and made a life out of something that you know was his alleged weakness and kind of same you know same for me. But um, you know. I don't know. To me, you know, there's, and this is true for kind of any kind of study where you're doing some deep analytical thinking. I mean, there's, I mean, you can do it and you can kind of live in your own little peer world where you you advance a science or you advance kind of a a way of thinking. Um, And, you know, and maybe in some ventures that's kind of fine and it doesn't, the success of the venture doesn't necessarily depend on your ability to kind of explain it and bring people into your story. But in many, it does, and I think it's definitely true for, you know, advanced baseball metrics. 
um, you know, the more that you're able, to, and, you know, we see this going on all the time, right? But the more you're able to, somebody is able to, and many people are able to explain it, talk about it, describe it, you know, make it real and come alive for people, the more accepted it will be. And, you know, I think that's the goal. Um, the goal is not, I don't think, to sit smugly on the sidelines and be like, oh, we understand the game better than you do. Ha, ha, ha. No, yeah, I don't um, think Yeah, I don't think that's the, the intention of anyone who's, so, who's serious about it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so storytelling for me is just kind of a critical part of kind of my whole life. That's kind of been what it's been about. And, you know, maybe in 10 years it'll be something else, but for now it's, it's baseball. Well, before we go, I, I'd like to address the uh, – the present incarnation of the San Francisco Giants. Um, if this is the team you know you care most about, uh, to to get your thoughts on. Uh, I mean, I guess there you know there have been some offseason moves, most noticeably uh, or notably, I should say, the uh, the Jonathan Sanchez trade um, that netted, if you if you want to think about it that way, that netted uh, <laughs> Melky Cabrera. I don't know how you feel about Melky Cabrera. I, you know, I think uh, certainly Dave Cameron. Our managing editor, he actually he liked the trade uh, for the Giants in terms of uh, in terms of that. I don't I don't know how you feel or the uh, I guess the deal to acquire uh, Pagan on Hell Pagan. Right. Uh, it's a well, different outfield, different yeah. look. Different look. Um, I actually wrote kind of my kind of mid off season review of the Giants uh, for Fangraphs oh, a couple of weeks ago. In fact, it's my most read post ever on Fangraphs. Um, and uh, I kind of took the Giants to task and, and continue to hold this view that, um, you know, the critic, they made a critical mistake, in my view, at the beginning of the offseason, which was to um, re-up with two of their lefty relievers for a whole lot of money. So they had um, an option, a $5 million option on Jeremy Affeld, which... 99% of the people who were, you know, watching the process play out were absolutely convinced the Giants were going to decline the option. Of course, they they, they did the opposite. They accept they they uh, accepted the option, um, agreed to the option. So they locked down Affel, who, you know, he had you know he had a fantastic 2009. He had kind of okay 2010, 2011, um, kind of had kind of come on toward the end of last season before he sliced his hand open trying to separate some frozen hamburger patties. So he didn't really play for the last month or last couple of weeks. And then they also went out and re-signed um, Javi Lopez, Javier Lopez, not Javi Lopez, the former catcher, uh, for four and a quarter million dollars for a two-year deal. So, uh, you know, they spent nine and a quarter million dollars at the very beginning of the offseason on two lefty relievers. And that was within the constraints of their saying, uh, we've got about $130 million payroll. Then they did those two deals. With everything else they had on the books, pretty much after that, they kind of threw up their hands and said, oh, we've kind of run out of money. Um, and so that put them in the position of not, I mean, you know, they didn't pursue Carlos Beltran kind of really at all which when you see the money that Beltron signed for is, is kind of criminal considering that they gave up, you know, maybe their top prospect in Zach Wheeler for several months of Beltron last year. And they said when they made the Beltron trade last year that the idea was to bring him in and then to re-sign him. And I know he was injured and they may have gotten, you know, some trepidation about that, but they made almost no play for him. And considering that he signed for a pretty reasonable deal, that, 
it, it, it's just one of those things that I, <laughs> I really just don't I don't get it. Have you I mean, seen have, God, God, have you seen Wheeler's Curveball at all? Um, I've seen video of Wheeler's Curveball. Oh, it is beautiful. It's a thing of beauty. It is. It's it so amazing. Like pretty, I, I love it. Yeah. I get like a. Uh, I, uh, something stirs within me when I see that pitch. I, I don't know if it's going to be effective or not, but it's 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 striking to see. I, uh, I know there's there's some pretty good YouTube video from I think the guys at BaseballInstinct.com. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think Wheeler's one of those guys now that you know Mets fans are kind of like they don't have a lot to look forward to when he's kind of at the top of their list right now. So you know, good for them. But I mean, not in retrospect. I mean, not just because Beltran got hurt and. Giants didn't make the playoffs. Turned out not to be a good deal. I was very much in favor of that deal at the time. I really thought Deltron was going to be the thing that was going to put them over the top, you know, kind of offensively, meaning score more than three runs a game. Uh, you know, it turned out not to be the case. Um, but to to kind of do that deal and then not try to pursue him, I, I you know, I, I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me. So that being said, I would say, um, you know, I think, you know. The Cabrera deal could work out fine. Unfortunately, it was a classic, you know, they sold high and, I mean, they sold low and bought high. You know, they, they had other opportunities to trade Sanchez over the years. They kind of waited, waited, waited for him to kind of turn it around and really get his head together. And when he didn't, then they traded him. So, you know, I'm not sure that was particularly effective business strategy. And, you know, I mean, hopefully, you know, Cabrera can sustain it. I mean, he had a career year last year and, you know, he hits for some power, and, you know, I mean, hopefully that will, you know, he'll be a gap-to-gap guy, and that will work. Um, and the Pagan for Torres trade, I mean, you know, I'm neutral to that. That seems like a good deal, you know, for the Giants. I'm fine with that. But those deals happen in the context of, you know, kind of nine and a quarter million dollars for two lefty relievers and in the context of the rest of the budget. So that's, you know, Zito for whatever the number is, 16, whatever the number is up to now, 17 million, Rowan still on the books for eight and change, Oof. and Aubrey Hoff for ten. Oof. So what you, I mean, you start with, you know, Zito, Rowan, and Hoff. It's like forty something million dollars, right? Zito's going to be your fifth starter if that. Rowan is gone, and Huff, you know, who knows? So you're, you're basically at the raise payroll with almost nothing to show for it, right? <laughs> and then you know, so then you, then you just kind of run through the rest of the budget. You know, I give them, you know, I, I understand the strategy of wanting to save money and to kind of have to budget for, you know, Lincecum. I mean, obviously, if to budget for Lincecum, he's, you know, he's going to go through arbitration. If they don't reach a deal, that's going to be probably record-breaking arbitration. So, you know, I, I mean, I kind of get their strategy of wanting to, you know, lock down Lincecum and Kane. But, I, I mean, I guess they've done a bunch of other things that, kind of, in my view, kind of put handcuffs on them and made it difficult for them to, uh, maybe more effectively upgrade their offense. Because if the pitching holds up, I mean, the pitching has been, and it was even better in 2011 than it was in 2010. I mean, it's spectacular. And I have some concerns about regression for that because because that kind of happens, you know. Um, but if the pitching holds up, I mean, they don't need that much more offense than what they had last year. I mean, that was the formula in 2010. But, you know, they're banking on a – Almost a full year of Posey, meaning you know he won't. He'll play probably 120, 130 games. They're banking on Freddie Sanchez coming back. They're banking on Hoff bouncing back. I mean, there's just a tremendous number of ifs they've left themselves themselves no no margin for error, which w- is what happened last year. And then with the injuries, it didn't work. So I'll say this: they do have 
three, well, two and a half. I, I mean, th- two of them are real prospects, and the third is one that I just sort of have an irrational uh, taste for. But uh, and they haven't necessarily had a lot of position prospects of late, it, with the exception of Posey and and Belt, although. Or right, and Sandoval, right. Uh, but but uh, currently, I mean, between Gary Brown, who right. who seems at this point kind of like an uber, uh, like, a, you know, like Peter Borjo's plus. I was going to say, it's like a Hunter Penn. Yeah, exactly. I saw him play a bunch. I went down to San Jose and saw him play in a few games toward the end of the single-A season. I mean, it's fun to watch him. Right, he yeah. He's just really odd batting stance, though. I've been told, I've had some conversations with people kind of people have said, really, you never ever, you don't, you don't really care how they line up in the box. What you care about is their mechanics when they see the ball come out of the pitcher's hand. But he looks funny in the batter's box. Right. But he's fun to watch. Uh, fun and, to watch. And do you, now, I'm curious, did you get to see any Joe Panic? Because he had a terrific... I didn't see, yeah. Uh, I didn't see Joe Panic, and I know a lot of people are pretty, pretty high on him. So I think he's, right, I mean, Brown and Panic, I think, were one and two in, in Baseball America rankings that just came out. So, you know, and I've heard really good things about Panic. I know they're trying to, right, he's a, na- Panic is a natural first baseman and they're trying to move him to second. Is that? Uh, I think, well, they've, he's been playing shortstop, actually. I oh, think there's, there's okay. some questions about his arm and if I'm not mistaken, maybe he had uh, some work done on his arm at some point. Uh, the arm might be okay. fringy, I believe, is the thing. But his contact skills are uh, ridiculous um, or, you know, certainly above average and, and he had an excellent right. AFL. Uh, and then Connor Gillespie, who, to my mind, has done nothing wrong ever, uh, but is for whatever reason marginalized in, in the uh, in the organization. Um, I guess um, third yeah, base I, is blocked. Yeah. yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't really speak to kind of that. Why that is? I mean, I know. Yeah. What's in Connor Gillespie? One of the somebody when we were doing the second opinion blurbs, right? Didn't someone? Take over Connor Gillespie. I did. Or, oh no! Oh, I demanded did. Connor Gillespie. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's me. I knew I, knew I had this discussion. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's me. I, well, I didn't mean to take him from anyone. I I just. Oh, it's okay. He was on. I mean, I just did a bunch of the the Giants folks. Um, yeah, he's just kind of a pet anyway. for me. I, I I liked him a lot going into last year, and he actually. I mean, I think it was his twenty three or twenty two or twenty three year old season at AAA. He performed fine. He was above league average hitter. So, for me, that's a player that you want. I, you know, he doesn't have any standout tools, but uh, but he seems to do a bunch of things well. And uh, I, you know, I, I'm not claiming that he'll be a star, but I think that there's certain players of this grade that maybe get a little bit overlooked because they because they don't have very high ceilings. But you know, if your floor is high enough, it doesn't matter. So. Yeah. No, I can't. I mean. Um, I, I, I mean, my understanding is, is there's a bit of a split opinion on him, and I, but I just don't, you know, I haven't studied him in particular to know kind of what, who his benefactors are and kind of who the people are kind of holding him back and why that is. So, well, I'll tell you what, Wendy Thurman, um, next time you're on the podcast, in the, in the meantime, we'll both do some serious thinking about Connor Gillespie. Maybe we'll get a chance to see him play in Arizona. And then we're going to meet right back here. That's, I can't wait. That's, that's going to happen. Sounds delicious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and well, we're gonna—I mean, if, if if not before that, we will see each other uh, in Arizona the sort of second week, I guess, of uh, of uh, of March. Of March, yeah. I'm 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 
I'm delighted. I mean, I, I was already planning to go basically around that time because I'm also going to be at the Sabre Conference at the end of the following week. I've got some friends there, and that seems like a perfectly good time to spend nine days in Arizona seeing a lot of baseball games. So, I, I mean, there seems to be nothing wrong with that plan at all. Yeah. Very excited. It's happening. It's all I happening. Know, really, really looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, listen. Hey, uh, it was really excellent meeting you, uh, Wendy Thurm. Uh, same here. Yeah. Since it's Julie, it's... it's I've been waiting for this moment. This I, is it. It just worked out fabulous. <laughs> it happened right here, right now. It did. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but thanks for joining us. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, I look forward to our, our next encounter, whether it's uh, over the air or in person. Me too. All right. Thanks. Th- all right. Thanks a lot, Wendy. All right. All right. Bye-bye. That's Wendy Thurm. I'm Carson Sestouli, and uh, this has been another White Hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Audio.